So hey, grab your Bibles. Uh, nice to see you here, and uh, nice to see all you folks joining us uh, uh, through this wonderful venue that we can connect with you at the campuses. Grab your Bibles. We are going to be in the next chunk in Philippians, and you'll want to be uh, reading along with me in just a few moments. So uh, back in 1991, uh, a guy named John Kilcullen, who happens to be a book uh, publisher, uh, was having dinner with a bunch of his friends in Lower Manhattan, and one of his buddies said, hey, I got a book idea for you, which I guess for publishers, this happens all the time. Uh, but he talked about a conversation that he was eavesdropping on earlier in the days. Like, I'm in a computer store. It's the early 90s, so think back to what computers were in the early 90s. And the customer ahead of me was complaining a little bit, but just asking for help. I just cannot figure out this operating system. Do you got anything that is written down in simple form for guys like me to be able to understand? Like literally, like DOS for dummies or something like that. You should publish a book about that. So Kilcullen took that idea and he published the first for dummies book, DOS for Dummies, back in 1991. And since then, that series of books has published over 2,500 titles. I'm sure you've bumped into them. They're colorful uh, yellow and black, and now they've added a red feature to them. And nearly any topic that you can think about is included in this series, including this one, the Bible for Dummies. <laughs> so if you've got some friends who are like, I just need it in basics, there's a book, there's an option. You will know that in any discipline that you are pursuing in life, any discipline, you know that it's good to understand the basics, the fundamentals. Uh, if you master this one habit or this set of skills, then you can master the whole, we're told. So you think through any area that you pursue, whether it's music or sports or learning a language, cooking, math, science, engineering, you name it. Every area has its building blocks upon which if you master those basic fundamental building blocks, you are able to master the whole. So you think through basketball players, these little kids that literally spend hours and hours and hours and hours literally learning to bounce a ball, learning to dribble a ball, to handle that ball well, to pass it in and out of their legs and run down the court, weaving their way through other players and the hours that go into learning to literally bounce a ball. Uh, or if you play guitar and you play it well, you will know the hours that go into learning the scales and the skills. And uh, it takes me back to college days. Some of you might have had a college dorm like I had, where you got a roommate and then there's a concrete wall on one side and a wooden wall on the other side. And through the wooden wall, you can hear everything going on in the door next door. There happened to be a guy next door who was a phenomenal guitar player, but we did not realize how many hours a guitar player spends practicing. And it wasn't music. It was scales. Hours on hours. And then once in a while, there would be a tune emerge. Oh, he's playing a song. And then halfway through it, no, stop. But the skills that that guy had when he got up to play his guitar was amazing because he was mastering the fundamentals. And so if you were commissioned to write the book, The Gospel for Dummies, the message that undergirds the next paragraph that we're in in Philippians chapter 3 would certainly be front and center because it goes to the very core, the most basic question of Christianity, and in fact of all world religions, how are we made right with God? How are we made right with God? And our response to that and the question and the answer that Christianity gives. So we're going to read the text together. You can follow along. Philippians 3, the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here's where we're going. I want to suggest to you that if you truly understand the claims of the gospel, if you truly understand the claims of the gospel, there are only two possible responses. Either you will reject it, you'll reject it, or secondly, you will rejoice in it. Only those two options. Meh is not an option. There's no take it or leave it. It's either reject it or rejoice in it. And I think that Western Christianity has to ask this question. That if we say that we believe the gospel to be true and we truly understand what the gospel is all about, then why is there not more full-blown celebration and joy being lived out in our lives? That's the question. Because if you're bored with the things of God, then I've got to say to you, you have not truly understood the things of God. If you're bored, then you've not truly understood it. Because either you will reject it or you will rejoice in the gospel, but meh is not an option. So rejoicing is a central theme of this book. You will know that if you've studied it before. Philippians is sometimes called the book of joy. Uh, back in chapter one, Paul is like, I'm under house arrest, but I'm rejoicing because the gospel is not chained. And further, I'm rejoicing, a couple verses, because I'm convinced I'm going to be released from prison and I'm going to come and see you again. So I rejoice. Chapter 2, join me in making my joy more complete, that you would live like Jesus, that you would humble yourself, that you would put other people's needs above your own, make my joy complete, and then I rejoice with you, and you rejoice with me, and this, we pour out our lives as we are being spent for the Lord, we, we rejoice in this mutual service of sacrifice unto the Lord, and then what, as we looked at last week, we rejoice in the fellowship and the friendship of brothers and sisters in Christ, leaders, leaders like Timothy and Epaphroditus who, who behind the scenes were doing their work and we rejoice in that fellowship. And then yet again in chapter three, verse one, he says, it's no burden for me to say it again. In fact, it's no trouble at all because it is unto your safety. Rejoice in the Lord. It's actually a verb. It's an imperative. Rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. 
So in many ways, it's a very simple message. And in other ways, it is one of the most profound and life-altering messages of all time. And we're going to look at it just from three uh, angles, uh, and really the third one takes us into next week, but rejoicing wrongly, rejoicing rightly, and then the road to rejoicing, which we'll touch on this week and then really unpack next week. But in the first four verses there, uh, from verse 2 through verse 6, which we already read, Paul highlights our human tendency toward religion. Our human tendency toward the law, toward legalism, toward self-righteousness that somehow is wound up in the human heart. That the human heart so desperately wants the spotlight on us and on what we can accomplish to prove ourselves to be right. And how our default mode is actually to rejoice in the wrong things. Our default mode is set to rejoice wrongly. You see, the text assumes a question that is not stated explicitly, but it is under the question. It is there in the background, and it is that question, how can we be right with God? That's the question undergirding this passage. What is the gospel for dummies? What is the one thing that you need to know or master in order to be in good standing with God? And it is that question It is that question that every major world religion, every philosophy is trying to answer in the spiritual sense. How am I made right with God? And and Christianity gives a very distinct and a unique answer. Uh, I'm sure those of you in the church any length will have heard the very famous story of C.S. Lewis walking into the faculty lounge at Oxford and and, and the debate is going on as he comes into the room and they're like, hey, here comes Jack. He will have the answer to this question. We've been arguing amongst ourselves. What is it that sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions? And C.S. Lewis is like, that's easy. That's easy. Grace. One word, grace. Christianity is the only religion where God offers unmerited favor, grace that is given to you, not because you earn it, not because you merit it, but because God chooses to give you this. So in other words, the handles or the taglines that you put on it, religion is spelled D-O, do, whereas the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, done. That absolutely everything that needed to be done for you and me to be right with God has been done in Jesus Christ. Signed, sealed, delivered, past tense, period. Done. So don't rejoice in your good works. Don't rejoice in your religious activities. Don't rejoice that this week you had a good spiritual week, quote unquote. You rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ that was credited to your account. And so you say, well, why is this command to rejoice in the Lord so important? Uh, Paul says, it's no trouble for me to to say it. In fact, I'm actually saying it for your safety. Well, because this doctrine of grace will consistently come under attack. That's why Paul said it was so important. Because human nature is so helplessly and hopelessly religious. We, we actually love the law. Now, before you argue with me let, me, let me argue with you. We actually love the law. Now, that does not mean that we're willing to follow every edict that gets passed down to us. But it means that this sense of the law is embedded in the human heart, that that we gladly and willingly say that our world needs to be ordered. In fact, chaos drives us crazy. 
When there's chaos in a relationship or on a sports team or in any kind of relationship, you're like, somebody has better get this thing figured out. And in other words, put some rules of engagement in place. Uh, anytime you find yourself saying this is wrong or it shouldn't be like this, you're reflecting your desire for the law. You're reflecting your desire for order out of chaos. As you drive off the parking lot, we just make the assumption that everybody driving the streets will be following the rules, right? That they will stop at the red light, they will go at the green light, that they will signal as they change lanes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, think of it this way. Uh, somebody invites you over and they're going to introduce to you a new game. Maybe it's a board game, a card of games, or maybe it's an outdoor sports game, a field game. Uh, first of all, you, you, you need to know what's the game about, what's the goal of the game, how do I win it, and then very quickly you are asking the question, what are the rules, right? If you're going to play this game, you need to know what the rules are. And does not it drive you crazy when you get to a friend's house and they have different rules than your house rules? That is not how we play that game. Don't be stupid. This is how the game is played. Our son is a, a real board game freak. He was over today. He is reading, currently reading, let, let, get this, he is reading an 84-page rules for a new game that is coming out called Frosthaven. 84 pages of rules? I'm like, chuck it, Done. <laughs> And so too when it comes to the things of faith. So too when it comes to the things of faith. We love our rules. You see, there's actually comfort in being given a list of all the things that you should and should not do. And it is why religious practices have some comfort to people. Because they can say, I've done my duty now. I've said my prayers. I've given my alms. I've taken care of the poor. I've made some sacrifice to appease the gods, and so I'm good for another day because I've done what I need to do. I've checked off the list. Now think this through, Paul's message. No matter where he went, as you're reading his missionary journeys, his message was fundamentally the same. He presented himself as an ambassador of Christ, that he spoke on behalf of Christ, that he came bearing a message of another authority, and that he consistently said, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. It is what the church is about today. It is what every time we gather is about. It's what we do in the city. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. But the question is, how? And consistently, wherever Paul went, he said, you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So he gets into Philippi back in Acts 16. We looked at this. He, he meets Lydia. He meets a slave girl. He meets Joe Jailer. And after the earthquake, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is straightforward. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. That's the bottom line. You want to know what salvation is about? It's not a list of works. It's believe. Act on it, surrender it, place your faith and trust in Christ, believe the good news and give your life over to it. And now he shoots this warning shot across the bow. He writes back to this church and he says, watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out for people who want to add to the message of the gospel. Jesus is great, Jesus is good, but there's a little more that you need to have than just Jesus. So what was happening here? What was in danger of happening here? And the simple and profound message of the gospel 
is being changed. Specifically, Jewish Christians who wanted to add some Old Testament rituals on top of the New Testament gospel. That's the specific. Now, some of you know this because if you're familiar with Paul's ministry, you will know that this issue comes up again and again and again and again in Paul's ministry. In fact, one book, the book of Galatians, is written entirely on this subject, and it comes up in several of his letters. But if you're not familiar with the issue, I need to take a bit of a rabbit trail. So the rest of you listen in. If you're not familiar with this, it's up, it, this is for you to get you up to speed. Because Paul is addressing multiple times in multiple letters this group of people who wanted to add some trappings of the Jewish religious system, the Jewish ceremonial law specifically on top of Jesus and the finished work of Christ. Uh, he called them Judaizers. Uh, If you look it up in a Bible dictionary, here's the definition. The English word Judaizer connotes the practice of imposing Jewish religious and social customs on others. So these were Christians. They were Jews who had come to faith in Christ. They would identify as followers of the way, followers of Christ, but they were Jewish by heritage, and they wanted to bring with them the elements of the Jewish law. Now, three areas. In some cases, it was simply their customs, their, their ethnicity, their food, and, and stuff that was, there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, in the early church, many of the Jewish Christians continued to worship on Saturday. They continued to worship on the Sabbath because that had been their custom. Whereas the early church very quickly moved to Sunday gathering, the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection. And yet in the first century, you've got both. You've got worship services on Saturday and worship services on Sunday. Neither are right or wrong. They're just a different practice. But you've got others who are making it more of a big deal. And they're like, you know what? I'm not sure I can fellowship with you if you don't follow all the rules that I fellowship and so there were, or that I follow. And there were people who were breaking fellowship. Uh, specifically, uh, in Galatians, Peter has come to visit with Paul, and he is eating with everybody. He's eating with the Gentiles. And yet, when a Jewish group from Jerusalem arrives, he, he separates from them. And it goes on to say this. Uh, well, no, we're not there. I, I like how uh, Peterson talks about this. He's like, Peter, can't I smell a ham sandwich on your breath? Why are you eating with these people before your friends from Jerusalem arrived? Now you're separating. But the most serious is this, that there were those who placed saving value, salvation value, salvific value to the Jewish law. In other words, saying you cannot be a Christian unless. You cannot be saved unless, and then add whatever the rule happened to be. And interesting that their rules focused on three primary areas, Sabbath-keeping, circumcision laws, and dietary restrictions. All of those things were outward things that you could see. They didn't focus so much on pride and envy and greed and the, the issues of the heart that you can't see. It was all outward expressions that you could look across the room and see if anybody's obeying, right? He calls them dogs. Evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, dismissive and derisive. They were saying that you add anything to the finished work of Christ, Paul is saying, and then you're deceived. So this is a major debate in the New Testament church, and it remains a debate even today. How much of the Old Testament law are we as New Testament believers under a new covenant of grace required to follow? A lot of people ask that question. So 
crash course in Old Testament law. We're going to go further down the rabbit hole. This is a sidebar. It doesn't count as part of the message. We're getting farther into the rabbit hole. Crash course on Old Testament law. What's the Old Testament law all about? The first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of your Bible. The people of Israel, the people of God, are coming out of Egypt. They have lived 400 years enslaved. They didn't know how to govern a nation. They didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know how to do anything other than say, yes, sir, no, sir, salute, sir, because they were slaves for 400 years. They had no freedom. Now they're being led out by Moses, some million strong, headed across the Red Sea. They're headed to the promised land. And you ask the question, how are we going to run the nation? How are we going to worship God? What should be the rules of engagement? A good question. And so the Lord, in the books of the law, basically gives them the articles of confederation for this new nation. He gives them all the rules that they will need to set up this new nation. And he he gives them in, in three broad areas, the moral law, how you should live your life, how you should treat one another morally and ethically, the ceremonial law, how will you worship? How will you approach the Lord? What will you sacrifice? And all the things connected with the ceremonies of worship. And finally, simply the civil law. How are you going to do life in this new society? So, so really basic stuff, like you borrow your neighbor's ox, and while you're plowing with it, the ox dies. Who's liable? Can you be sued? What do you do with that? It's in the Bible. You want to loan some money or you want to borrow some money? Well, how much interest should you be charging? You've been a slave your whole life. You don't know how to do business like this. The Bible tells you if you're going to loan money, you charge this much interest. You're chopping wood. And the head of the axe flies off and it kills your buddy next to you. Is that murder? Should you be put to death? Is it manslaughter? Is it what? They needed the rules of the, uh, of the land. So the New Testament writes, or rewrites rather, and undoes so much of the Old Testament law, specifically the civil law that applied to the nation of Israel and the ceremonial law that applied to their worship. Now, I'm going to end that long rabbit trail. We're going to come back up out of that hole. There were Jewish people, there were Jewish leaders who had come to faith in Christ, but they still felt they needed to follow certain aspects of the ceremonial law in order to honor God, in order to ensure their salvation. So they felt we've got to keep some of those practices. But most deadly of all, and this is the key issue, most deadly of all, they were insisting that everyone around them also follow those same rules. They wanted to impose their practices on everyone else. Now, it is a massive topic in Paul's writings, and it comes up again and again and again. And Paul gives this group a a very dismissive and pejorative nickname. He simply calls them the circumcision party. Galatians 2, for certain men came from James, uh, this is Peter's rebuke, he was eating with the Gentiles, he's got ham sandwich on his breath, but when, he, when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the quote-unquote circumcision party. Okay, now I'll come back to our text. Paul is saying in this text that this kind of rejoicing is wrong, wrongly rejoicing. And then he goes on to say, if you want to play that game, I can play that game better than all of you. I've got you all beat. And he lists off seven qualifications that he has from verse four to six. 
A Hebrew of Hebrews, as of the law, Pharisee, zeal, persecutor, on and on the list goes. Seven unique distinctions that he has. And then he says in verse 8, but above all of these things, all of the profit, all of the gain on my ledger sheet of all these things, I count it but rubbish, verse 8 says. Now, that's an interesting word. Uh, The New Testament, the newer translations have cleaned up that word a little bit. Because if it was translated literally, and some of your translations do say, I count it but dung, Even dung is a nicer word than what it actually is. I won't actually say what the word is, but it's dung. Uh, German is scheiße. I won't say it in English, but that's what it is. Paul says all of these good works are but dung. They're garbage. None of this. All my good works, these are my very, very best things. Not my bad things. My very best things. And I count them but rubbish. Because what God wants to see is not behavior change, but a heart change. And he says the outward sign of circumcision is meaningless if the gospel has not cut to the core of your heart. Galatians 6, a long text on this subject, but it's worth it. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ." by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, and here's the key, but a new creation. Period. A new heart, a heart of flesh given to replace that heart of stone. And so what Paul is saying is that we as followers of Jesus are now called the true circumcision. And we we worship not by outward ceremonies or rituals, but we worship in spirit and in truth. So in other words, rightly rejoicing means that our focus is now entirely on the finished work of Christ and we add nothing to it, nothing. And so as we finish out this text, we see and hear Paul's passion. We see his angst. We see his earnestness for the pursuit of this kind of life. The desire, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I'm giving myself entirely to this as we get into next week's text. I press on to to reach the goal of this prize at the end of the race. I am striving toward it. You see his earnestness. So he says, It's no trouble for me to remind you about this again. Rejoice in the Lord. The gospel for dummies. Christianity 101. It is for your safety and it is for your joy. Why? Why is it so important? Because religion will lead us either to despair because we are always falling short of even our own expectations of ourselves, let alone the letter of the law. Always falling short. And so if you live that way, you will constantly be living a life of despair. Or the opposite. When you're having a good week, when you're living a good life, you will be bound to pride. What a great Christian I was this week. Puffed up and proud. Despair, pride. Despair, pride. Despair, pride. Yo-yo. That's how you'll live, live your life. The great danger Paul is addressing here is religious people who want to push that on others. 
And he literally says, who want to bite and devour one another. Look at Galatians 5. But if you bite and devour one another, it was on this very subject he was writing. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Tim Keller says this, religious people who don't understand the gospel have to bolster their own sense of worthiness by convincing themselves that they are better than other people. And it leads them to exclude and condemn others. Now, there is so much more that we could say from this text. There are so many other themes in it, and I've just chosen this one. But given the moment and the time that we're living in, I think it's enough, and there's some questions that I want to end with. You know this, that the times that we're living in are crazy times. You know this, the last couple years with COVID and all of the controversy that has gone with it has been a crazy time. Most people I talk to say it's been the hardest season ever in their lifetime. It's increasingly becoming a hard thing for Christians as we look at the direction that our nation is headed and then we're worried about so many things, we're upset about many things and then a week like this happens and we watch potential of war breaking out on another continent and we go, oh oh Lord God have mercy, what's going on? But my question to you brothers and sisters is simply this, are you rejoicing in the Lord? The text says rejoice in the Lord. Yes, COVID sucks. Yes, lockdowns stink. And yes, every single person hearing this message disagrees with some aspect of some decision that somebody has made. But have we lost perhaps the most important distinctive of the Christian life? And that is our ability to rejoice even in the face of the craziest times. Why? How? Because we're not rejoicing that we live in a democratic nation. And we're not rejoicing whether or not a vaccine will take this pandemic away or not. And we are not rejoicing because some decision in Parliament in Ottawa will either affirm our faith or disavow our faith. Our rejoicing is not, God forbid, that somehow we're living better lives than others. Our rejoicing is not that we pray and we give and we serve, although we do all of those things. Our rejoicing is in Jesus Christ's finished work credited to our account. And our, there you go. Our rejoicing is that our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. And if the world came to an end today, that we know that we have been reconciled to a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ, and nobody can take that away from us. Anything else that anyone wants to add to that? Paul says, Shiza. (laughs) And I'm sure that there are people here today who need to hear this message and surrender to Jesus Christ for the very first time. You might say, I've been exploring the Christian faith and I've been exploring other world religions and I've been asking questions and I've, I've wondered about what does the Bible have to say about how you get right with God and, and I'm at a point where I, I believe the Bible is actually true, what it says about God and what it says about me. And that you need to, for the very first time, just simply say yes, that's all you need to do. 
is just say, yes, Lord, I do. I believe what the Bible says about you and about me, and I'm willing to lay down my life, the mess I've made of it. I'm willing to turn away from it, walk towards you, and I will surrender to you, and I will receive your free gift. Some need to do that. But there's a second group here as well, and it is a much larger group. It is likely the majority listening to this message. Men and women who have stepped into salvation, who have stepped into freedom in Christ, quote unquote, and who need to get that truth from your head down to your heart. You need to have an 18-inch conversion. Your head, you know it all. It is true, but somehow your heart is not engaged. Because if you truly understand the claims of the gospel, there are only two responses. You will either reject it or you will rejoice, but meh is not an option. If you're bored with the things of God, then you don't understand the things of God. Because the Christian life is more than knowledge. Yes, our minds are engaged, but a non-rejoicing Christian, listen to me carefully, a non-rejoicing Christian may not be a Christian at all. I fundamentally believe that. And it is why Paul hammers away at it again and again and again. I want to know Christ. I make it my ambition to be found in him. All my righteousness and all my joy are in him and in him alone. So reject the gospel or rejoice in the gospel. Reject the Lord or rejoice in the Lord. Those are the only two options. And so I thought, how do you close something like this? And I thought, you know what? Maybe one of the best things we could do is to just simply listen to scripture being read over us and responding to some scriptures about joy. If you've got a Bible program or just Google it, Google the word joy in the scriptures and you will come up with hundreds and hundreds of passages because joy is one of the predominant realities to our walking with God. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me uh, here at Downs and on every one of our campuses. Would you stand with me right now? And we're going to read back and forth. You're going to read with me. And you need to read it good and loud. We're going to read, I'm going to read, the women will read, I'll read, the men will read, I'll read, we'll all read together. So at all of our campuses, read out good and loud. Let the scriptures soak over you. And I'll just say the phrase that you are repeating back to me time and time again is from Nehemiah 8 verse 10. It's a very famous Old Testament text that the joy of the Lord is my strength. It was when the wall around Jerusalem, the nation had been defeated, destroyed, sound familiar, needed to be rebuilt. They rebuilt the wall, they had a dedication ceremony, and and they pulled out the book of the law, and as Ezra begins to read the book of the law, the people, it was like July 1st weekend last summer when we got back the first time, people are weeping. It was so good to be with God's people. And, and they began weeping, and Nehemiah's like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't weep. Today is not a day for weeping, today's a day for party. Today's a day to go home and pull out the wine and the bread and pull the neighbors over. Because why? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So read it back to me. Women, men, all. Women, men, all. You'll see it. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Women. You made me known, you've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Men, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Joy of the Lord. And then one final blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.